Hello and welcome to More Than A Number, the podcast brought to you by ICAEW, looking behind the numbers to discover how they're really impacting our lives. I'm financial journalist Louise Cooper, and today in this episode, 12 trillion dollars. That is the market opportunity for businesses helping to achieve the United Nations global sustainable goals in food and agriculture, cities, energy and health. It was in 2015 that the UN launched this blueprint to achieve a better and more sustainable future for all. It's a series of aims addressing global challenges like poverty, hunger, health, education, clean water, sustainability and inequality. The $12 trillion figure came from a report, Better Business, Better World, The Business Case for Sustainable Development Goals. And I'm delighted to say Lord Malik Brown was chair of the Business Commission for Sustainable Development that wrote the report and joins me now. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. Briefly, what caused you to write this report? Well, I think we wanted to nudge business past just thinking this was some extension of corporate philanthropy, of corporate social responsibility, if you like, into recognising that they needed to invest in that better world because it was where future market share lay for them. So this was taken away from just being a good thing to do to being essential to their bottom line. So what did you conclude? Where did this $12 trillion come from? Well, it came across just four of the Millennium Development Goals, essentially. The number would have been much bigger if we'd looked across all of them. But it came from, for example, in the area of transportation, moving from an economy where everybody has their own car in the garage and maybe two or three, to one where we share cars, where we use self-driving technologies, where we use Uber-style rental technologies to get much more efficient use out of cars, which at the moment, spend 90% of their lives in that garage, you know, waiting for their owners to use them. And when we looked across every sector within those four goals, from food waste to car usage to renewable energy, we found that the transition to these new models of business and technology just generate huge amounts of value for the businesses that take the lead in introducing them. So businesses should read this report to give them strategic direction? Yeah, this is their future markets. Joining me on the line now is Graham Pitkelfi, Chief Financial Officer at Unilever. Welcome, Graham. Now, Unilever's come up with the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan. What is it and what does it do? Well, we first launched it several years ago now. Uh, we call it the USLP. It was pretty radical, I think, uh, and maybe a little bit ahead of its time in those days. And, um, you know, fundamentally, it was about three clear and interrelated priorities. First of all, we wanted to grow our business, absolutely. But in growing the business, we also wanted to reduce our environmental footprint and we wanted to increase the social impact that we have. And we've continued to develop the USLP. We've actually moved it forward quite recently to make it a much more integrated business strategy so that instead of having just a sustainable sustainability strategy and a you know financial and corporate strategy they're now tightly integrated and we're trying to make them a little bit simpler and that simplicity is coming around three core beliefs the first one is that brands with purpose grow and the second one is that people with purpose thrive and the third one is that companies with purpose last you know normally as a CFO you sort of want to have unique strategies but this is definitely a scenario where 
more and more companies thinking this way, I think, benefits everybody. There are other stakeholders here. You've got shareholders, Unilever's a large company, and you've got potential employees. How much influence have shareholders, potentially employees, had in, you know, you, you committing to the UN's goal, sustainable development goals? Yeah, quite a lot. We're very explicit about the fact that we have a multi-stakeholder approach to our business. You know, we take account of, as you said, our employees, our partners, our customers, our suppliers, you know, the environment, the planet at large, society, etc. But, um, you know, I, I spend a lot of time in the business being clear that across that multi-stakeholder universe, in the case of Unilever, there are two groups whose interests are most primary. The first is our consumers. You know, we're a consumer company, Louise, and the moment that we stop thinking about the consumer is the moment that we stop performing as well as we can. So we put the consumer first in everything that we do. So in that multi-stakeholder environment, the consumer really comes first. And then at the end of the chain, our shareholders are really important. You know, they provide the capital. It's their capital that we're managing. They allow us to exist. They provide the ability for us to grow our business. And it's important that we provide attractive returns to them. So our vision for the company is to, to, is to have the world's most sustainable business. But in doing that, show and prove and demonstrate that by running the business this way, we deliver superior financial returns. And we measure that by having returns that in the top third total shareholder return of our peer group. So for me, it's very clear. We do a multi-stakeholder model, but it starts with the consumer and it's in the interest of serving our shareholders. And we think if we run our business that way, we'll create more value for longer for those shareholders. I've looked on your website and it states, the SDGs are a once in a lifetime opportunity to create a better world. As scale and reach mean we can contribute to and benefit from them. Um, Let's move on to sustainable palm oil. Because, again, palm oil, a very important raw material for many of Unilever brands. There's been a lot of criticism from environmental campaigners about particularly slashing and burning rainforest to make space for the growth of palm oil plants. So you've come up with a strategy here. So just tell me what the sustainable palm oil strategy is. It's a very historical product, actually, for Unilever. The very formation of the company was a partnership between the Dutch and UK businesses, which was in some part a partnership around the sourcing of palm oil because palm oil was used for margarine and palm oil was used in a great number of um, personal care products by Lever Brothers and soaps, etc. So it's a really important raw material for many, many of our brands. And finding a supply of sustainable and traceable palm oil, we saw many years ago as absolutely vital to the future success of the business. And that's why in 2004, we helped to set up the RSPO, which is the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil. And actually last year, we were the first company to publish our entire list of the mills that we use for palm oil. There's a really important thing to recognise about palm oil. It's a highly efficient crop and the alternatives to palm are much, much worse, particularly in terms of the carbon footprint of production and transportation for them. So the critical thing with palm oil is to have traceability that it comes from sustainable sources. And we're committed to getting to that, you know, 100% traceability goal. We're not done yet, but we think we're doing the right things. Also with me is Craig Bennett, Chief Executive of Friends of the Earth. Welcome, Craig. Hello. Good to be here. You've been highly critical of the destruction of the rainforest to grow palm oil commercially, particularly the role in in creating wildfires, for example, in the Amazon. 
are Unilever doing the right thing or should we stop using palm oil entirely? It's certainly very good that a company like Unilever will take the kind of steps to make the palm oil trade more sustainable than it would be otherwise. But I think we've got to get real here. Even so-called sustainable palm oil is not really sustainable. It's not necessarily delivering an environmental benefit. It's just perhaps not as bad as unsustainable palm oil. And there's still real questions about this. It's very clear that the best thing for the environment would be for us all to be consuming as much locally produced fresh food as possible, rather than part of big commodity trade, shipping it right around the world and big processed food that sits on the shelves for ages. And that's really why we need palm oil. We used not to have palm oil in our food in this country. And now we do really because of the food system and the way it's gone over the last few decades. So good that Unilever takes those steps to reduce the harm. But does it mean it could make it a good thing? No, it would be much better to have rainforest where those palm oil plantations are now. Friends of the Earth also been really quite critical of profit maximising businesses. And I'm going to read you a couple of quotes from your website. Talk about the broken capitalist economic model based on endless extractive growth, profit in inequality. Talking about the need to confront the immense power of corporations, overwhelming evidence of their central role in the destruction of the environment, people's rights and democracy. And yet, Mark's report, Lord Malik Brown's report, says businesses can profit from the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Profits to be made. Are you okay with that? It's perfectly possible for all those things to be true at the same time. I mean, you only have to look at the evidence. Our current global capitalist system is broken. I mean, there's no way it's coming even close to fitting within environmental limits. We need at least three planets to provide the resources that we need as a population at the moment, let alone when you have a growing population and people wanting to grow more and more, consume more and more every year. So our current global capitalist system is broken from any kind of sense of sustainability. That doesn't mean that that's completely chuck it all out entirely. It does mean that there are opportunities within that for companies that want to do the right thing to make some money from that. But I think critically it means that the 21st century surely is going to be the century when humanity works out how to live on planet Earth as if we mean to stay. And that will require big, big changes to the way the world economy works and how we live. I'm actually quite optimistic at the ability of humans to finally figure it out. We might take a bit long over it, but we'll finally get there and work out that we've got to work out how to live here on this planet, all seven, eight, nine billion of us in a fair and just and and peaceful way. It will take a long time to get there, but we would be determined to do that. And so if that's the case, if you also believe that, then the big question for business is, do you want to be on the right side of history or the wrong side of history? It's a bit like going back a couple hundred years when William Wilberforce was proposing the abolition of the slave trade. There were plenty of people at the time that said, oh, this will harm our competitiveness and it's not, you know, it's actually much better for business to carry on having slaves and so on. Actually, over the long term, it's very clear which way we have to go. Society says we've got to go that way and business has to come in line. In your report, Mark, you write businesses need to regain the licence to operate. What do you mean by that? Well, in a very troubled world that we live in where people have lost faith in governments, in political institutions, in all sorts of things, right up there towards the top is big business. It is a distrusted set of institutions today. And, you know, therefore, for businessmen to suddenly... Or businesswomen, Mark. Or businesswomen to put the mantle on their shoulders that they're going to save the world is quite a leap of faith because people don't have the trust and confidence in them that they're operating in a way which puts 
the people's interest first. They seem to be beholden to, if you like, their shareholders, to their financial interests. And so the sort of rebooting of business to sort of recognize that it's an organization accountable to different sets of stakeholders, its customers, uh, its employees, broader society, not just to its financial owners, you know, is a huge part of this. And it's interesting because you write in your report that companies need to pursue social and environmental sustainability as avidly as they pursue market share and shareholder value. Our system isn't set up for that, Craig. You know, we have quoted companies. They've got share prices. The share prices are very linked to the profits and the executive board, those running the businesses, their compensation is linked to the share price going up and up and up thanks to higher and higher profits. You know, this does not make for a system that rewards sustainability. Have I got it wrong? No, and that is why we need what people call system change. And when you see millions of people protesting on the streets, as we have done over the last year, and I'm sure we will over the next year, those led by Greta Thunberg and and others, millions of people, young and old, are often calling for system change. That's the kind of scale we change we need. But what is system change? So, for example, there's lots of elements of it, but you're absolutely right, is that we give business this enormous gift of saying you can incorporate as a legal entity, as a legal person, and that is your licence to operate. And I think as society should in return say, you owe us something back for that. You have to operate within social, environmental and economic rules. And actually, we can take your license to uh, incorporate away if you don't do that. That's one of the things that I think we need. Actually, you know what? That's not anti-business. That's just making sure business operates in a way that benefits society. And I think if we set the system up to do that, you know, then we could really um, harness the benefits from business. I mean, I think we've got a huge free rider problem in business at the moment where some businesses move uh, but do increase their costs. They change to a renewable energy source. They pay more to the people at the bottom of their supply chains. They take these steps and it's very hard for them to sustain them unless their competitors take similar steps. So if you take palm oil, if, for example, Unilever were to overnight give up the use of palm oil, it would be left with a broken supply chain because it'd be up against other companies which were still operating global supply chains to put processed foods on your shelf for a long period of time. So it needs step change. And this is why the word systems is used, step change across a whole sector. But how do we do that? Well, we have it, stock markets. Yeah, no, no, we have no, pensions no, 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 invested no, no, no. in the stock well, market. So how, how do we do this in well, the real I think world? It, very easily. Um, it's partly government regulation. It's changes in the demands of investors, consumers and others. So it's societal change. It's not just a CEO making the change alone. So society has to change. Now, Graham, earlier in the series, we talked to Maersk, the giant shipping company. They've made this commitment to cut carbon emissions massively, but they don't know what it's going to cost. But they thought the public commitment, sort of saying it out loud, was important to bring politicians and sort of people on this journey with them because they couldn't change the world by themselves. And it sounds like you're saying the same thing. Yes, I, I think you can do as much uh, diligence as you possibly can on what the cost is. 
But if you believe it's the right thing to do, then first of all, you have to be transparent about the fact you're doing it. All of your stakeholders deserve to know that. Some shareholders, for example, might not think that's a good idea and they might choose to sell your shares. You're better off to be clear about that. But I do very much believe in that idea of creating the ambition and the goal and then finding ways on, these are all multi-year commitments and that then triggers the creativity and drive and investment within the company in order to find a way. And, and you can't be precise about it, to your point about precision and cost, but that commitment and that desire to get to a stated objective, I think, is very laudable. And Mark, there's been movement in this area recently in America. 181 CEOs signed up to a new way of operating, recognising the importance of all stakeholders, not just shareholders. Yeah, this was the business round table, which is, if you like, the sort of grandees of big business, Jamie Diamond of JP JP Morgan. Morgan, and you name it, a lot of the biggest CEOs. And it was a recognition that trust was broken. I mean, they might not say it in as stark terms as the two of us have said it here, but that trust is broken in the current business model, that business leaderships have got out of touch with ordinary people. And, you know, you've got to remember, you know, businessmen and women are fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters. Uh, Many of them, you know, came from lives much more modest than they've now arrived at. And so their own connection to a sense of wanting to contribute to a better world is, is, is not to be underestimated, but they again feel it so difficult to move as individual enterprises. They need their sectors to move. They need their governments to put enabling legislation in place to let them move. And I I think they realize the stakes are very high. I think, you know, the crisis of American capitalism, which has been accelerated by the Trump presidency because of its apparent, you know, doing anything for business mates, you know, has created this moment of inflection where, you know, capitalism has got to make its mind up which way it's going. Correct. Yeah, this has been exactly my experience uh, throughout my career, working often sometimes challenging business with big campaigns, but also sometimes working with business. There's very few bad, evil people in business. <laughs> the vast majority are ordinary people that are just trying to do the right thing. But they themselves are trapped in the system. I had the most ex- extraordinary experience once where I met the chair of one of the world's largest oil companies. And we talked about what needs to happen to tackle climate change. And he turned to me and then he, we, we were looking out of the window at the city of London. And he looked at it and he says, of course, Craig, you and I both really know that this will only change when we fundamentally rewire the capitalist system. This was a chair of an oil company said this to me, and we found ourselves in complete agreement about the huge system, the change that was needed. But he could never say that. He didn't feel he could say that because it'd share price get would all, go down 20%. Share price would go down and so on. <laughs> and I'm not going to tell you who it was. But, That's fine. <laughs> but it is extraordinary that even some of these the leaders of the world's largest corporations find themselves trapped in the system and would love to see the change if only it could be done and brought about. Graham, let's move on to this UN Goal 12, Responsible Consumption and Production, particularly your recent announcement on plastics. It's big news. I uh, had the usual joy and pleasure of presenting our results to the investment community. And it was a bit of a pivotal moment, actually, because we received a question from the sell side for, I think, the first time I can remember. And what do you mean by the sell side? Is that mean banks who tell fund managers whether to buy or sell your shares? Yeah, from the sell side analyst community, who are the ones who follow the company and they're the ones who will put notes out saying whether our performance was good or bad and whether people should buy or sell our shares or hold our shares. Yeah, exactly. 
But one very well-respected analyst in the sector chose to use their question uh, to ask about our plastics commitment. Now, specifically, they were asking around the cost of that in our business, how I thought about it as the CFO. Did I think it was an investment worth making? But I was just delighted that in a call that is normally dominated by relatively short-term financial performance, we were able to spend a bit of time on a topic like plastic and the, frankly, you know, big, bold and slightly scary and stretching commitments that we've now made around plastic use. I've been told Unilever's quite ahead of the game on this. Do you think of it as a first-mover advantage or a first-mover cost advantage. As an accountant, how do you think about the maybe potential hit to the profit margin compared to the long-term benefits of being further ahead of this and therefore in five years' time you'll be able to do it a lot cheaper than everybody else when maybe there's more regulation comes? I mean, how do you think about the investment, the scalability, the the fact that you think maybe more regulation will be coming? And how, how do you go about thinking all about this as the finance director? Well, let's start at a very strategic level. You've got to ask the question, if there's an on cost, is the consumer prepared to pay for it? And generally speaking, the answer to that question is no. The the consumers want the benefits of greener and safer products, more environmentally friendly solutions. But generally speaking, they're not prepared to pay a premium for that. So that then, as a finance director, flips you into cost saving mode. How do I make that investment? and then pull other levers within the P&L in order to offset the impact of that. So we have to find savings in other areas in order to do that. You know, it's interesting, though, since 2008, just the activity that we've taken within our supply chain to be a greener company has saved almost a billion euros by driving eco-efficiency within our factories and not putting hazardous waste out to landfill and reducing the amount of waste we produce every year. So you can find a way of funding it, Louise. It's just a question of finding the space within your P&L. Ultimately, though, we believe, I believe, that if you don't make this investment, then consumers will have a challenge in supporting your brand. In particular, younger consumers who are going to form the belly of our marketplace going forward. And and that's where moving quickly is important. That's why being clear in the way in which you call it out in the brand itself on the packaging, communicating it clearly. There's no point in doing this if you don't tell the consumer that you've done it. And that, that actually, even for a great marketing company like this can sometimes be a little bit of a challenge. We do a lot of stuff and then we're silent about it. Well, let's move on. Now, Mark, you published your report January 2017. We're almost three years now on. Has British business responded to what you wrote? And if so, how? Well, I think we're still in the stage where businesses respond singly rather than in multitudes. And it's the drip, drip, drip of the bath slowly filling. Uh, But we've still got to, in a lot of sectors, get to the kind of critical tipping point where enough business leaders are on board that the whole sector tips that way. But, you know, the the, the signs are there. I mean, Unilever, who's then CEO, was a member of the commission, you know, is a company which tends to score at the top of the various league tables which measure this, despite the palm oil example. And rightly so. But what's that reflected in? That it's one of the most competitive companies for graduates to go work for, that their purpose-driven brands get a bit more market share than their sort of duller, non-purpose-driven competitors from other uh, big multinational companies. 
countries. So they're able to demonstrate the sort of bottom line value of what they're doing. Happier, longer staying employees, better market share. And that message is not lost on competitors. Because this is all about business opportunities by looking at these goals. Yeah, but business opportunities are very large. As If you want a business which is productive because it's a happy place to work, if you want a business which is going to last the next turndown in the stock market or the next wave of mergers and acquisitions, be this kind of business. Look, I think ultimately it's about making sure your business model is aligned to the future and is future-proof. You know, companies that don't do this, that don't treat these issues seriously will become the blockbuster video in a Netflix age. And I think, you know, there's plenty of companies that have gone the way of uh, extinction because they haven't kept up with the times and, and really just following sustainable development goals or any of this kind of thinking, tackling climate change is keeping up with the times. But you said earlier, Mark, the problem is if not every company does it, you said it as well, Craig, that you can be left at a competitive disadvantage. A lot of these things come with extra costs attached. Uh, Electric cars are more expensive. Green energy is more expensive. Paying women equally to men can be very expensive. All these things are costs. Why am I thinking about it the wrong way? Well, you know, how you can shift your thinking on that a lot, and I think it's appropriate, particularly when talking to accountants, is think you can think about something being a cost or you can think about it being an investment. And often it's the same thing. And I think, you know, either companies will invest for the future or they will fail to invest. And I think that's what it's really about. Yes, there are other companies that might undercut them in the short term, and there's a responsibility on governments to govern and put the regulations in place to stop that because that's not in the public interest. But it will happen ultimately. And that's your conclusion, Mark, that this cannot be uh, self-regulation. This has to be enforced by multinational bodies, national governments, in order that everybody comes on board. Well, you've got to create level playing fields. And that's how you do it, is to get that sort of underwriting regulation. But, you know, it's got to kind of come out of business finding the way, society pushing it, and everybody coming together into a consensus. It's not imposing an extra cost on the economy. It's, as we've just heard, it's making an investment, which actually is going to deliver cleaner, better services, almost certainly in most cases, a lower unit cost. So let's go back to the original question posed. $12 trillion profiting from the planet. How will social development goals benefit business, Mark? Well, look, it's profiting from the planet, but for the first time, living within the resources of the planet, not plundering its resources, but recognising their finite character and adjusting business models to do that. And again, the point is, the rewards will go to those who have the imagination and the get up and go willingness to adjust their business models and take advantage of these new markets and new frontiers. Craig? So there was a seminal scientific paper published last autumn by some of the world's leading climate scientists in which they said very clearly that unless we have huge change, huge cuts in carbon emissions in the next decade or so, then actually the Earth system could tip into a state where it's very hard to stop it reinforcing itself, getting warmer and warmer, and then it becomes hard to stop. And they said, their words, not mine, that actually threatens civilization. So ultimately, we can talk about how does this benefit business? But if business doesn't get on the right side of this, there won't be any business. You know, it's not about some companies just doing better than other longer term. It's about whether actually human society and, and the civilization that we know at the moment is able to continue. So 
business has to really take these issues seriously because otherwise they won't exist long term. But guess what? There might be real questions over our civilization as well. Scary thoughts there. Um, Graham, the last word has to go to you. The United Nations Sustainable Development Goals are an incredible platform for international businesses. The scale of adoption, the clarity with which they're expressed, they're just a huge opportunity for business and therefore for any international business, just an amazing platform through which to think about your strategy, uh, think about how you manage your business going forwards. So thank you to all my guests for a fascinating discussion. Graham Pitt-Kelfi, Chief Financial Officer at Unilever, thank you. Lord Malik Brown, Chair of the Business and Sustainable Development Commission. And Craig Bennett, Chief Executive of Friends of the Earth. Thank you to you all. You've been listening to More Than a Number with me, Louise Cooper, a podcast brought to you by ICAEW, the Institute of Chartered Accountants in England and Wales. For those of you that don't know, chartered accountants are highly trained, critical thinkers who apply their knowledge to get behind the numbers and work towards building a world of strong economies. So make sure you subscribe to More Than a Number so you never miss an episode. If you want to get in touch, then please email us. M-T-A-N, short for more than a number, at ICAEW.com. M-T-A-N at ICAEW.com.